Good morning. Can you turn in your Bibles to uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 1? Now, it's the start of a new year, and so I'm going to begin a new study. At the end of my last uh, talk, Tom said to me that I I should uh, speak through the uh, book of Romans. Now, this is an, an absolutely enormous task. And whether we study the entire letter or just edited highlights, we will trust, as in all things, we'll trust it to the Lord's leading. So, we're just going to read from chapter 1. We're going to read Paul's introductory section, which goes from Romans 1, verse 1 to verse 17. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all the nations for his name among whom you also are called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. Without ceasing, I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if, by some means, now at last, I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith of both you and me. Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor to both Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, having... uh, been a school teacher for the best part of 30 years, um, I kind of feel compelled because one of the things you do as a school teacher, you always have to kind of link it back to the last lesson. And so, um, now the very first word of this letter is Paul. And uh, last time we were studying in 2 Timothy, we learned quite a lot about Paul personally. We concluded with Paul in prison, and here's our link he was in Rome and he was awaiting execution. And the last thought that we had was that Paul described himself, described his life as being one, being poured out like a drink offering. And that is, he means, 
a life of total commitment and service to his saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, as a thank offering. Now, just as we ended our last study considering the thought of total commitment to the Lord's service, that's where we'll begin on a similar theme. Because Paul brings our, our attention to this by describing himself as a bond servant, a bond servant of Jesus Christ. Now, before we think through the full implications of this, it's worth remembering what we learned about Paul at the end of his life. See, during that imprisonment in Rome, we discovered that Paul was lonely, that he felt abandoned. And this was particularly apparent to him when it was only the Lord that stood with him at his trial. Yet ten years or so earlier, Paul wrote this letter to the church in Rome. It's the longest of Paul's letters. And we need to think that letters are not like we can just write a note today. Uh, they took considerable time, considerable expense. Somebody would have to travel with that letter in order to deliver it. So given that all the effort that Paul went to and expressing his desire to bless them, and to visit them, leaves us with the question, well, what happened in that 10-year difference? You see, when he was alone and in jail, when he was on trial for his life, where were they? Now, without going into detail to answer that question, I do want to point out, and I think it's interesting to point out, and the answer lies somewhere, in that when Paul wrote Romans, Christians experienced a considerable degree of freedom. He wrote in the mid-50s AD. However, within 10 years, all of that had changed. The Roman Emperor Nero began a vicious campaign of persecution against Christians. And I believe that this is largely the reason why Paul received so little support. And like when Paul wrote Romans, we too are relatively free. There is some minor persecution in this country, but compared to what was experienced in the mid-60s AD, it is relatively minor. However, we do need to be mindful how quickly things can change. So Paul begins by describing himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. So the first question we need to ask was, what does Paul mean by bondservant? And the answer, uh, to answer this, we need to consider the issue of slavery. Now I've heard it said by many people that they take issue with the Bible, stating that it not only fails to condemn slavery, that it seems to endorse it. Actually, only people who've never read the Bible properly would say such a thing. You see, they're wrong on both counts. See, when we think of slavery, we understand it that it involves capturing or enticing an unwilling victim to be oppressed and exploited solely for the benefit of the slave owners or slave traders. That's our understanding. And when you read the Bible carefully, you find that this practice is soundly condemned in both the Old and the New Testaments. In fact, when you read that this is an offence in the Old Testament that brings the death sentence. And Paul, writing his, in his first letter to Timothy, condemns it wholeheartedly. However, slavery from a biblical perspective is much different. In fact, when we look at what it says and when we think about it, it can be considered as an act of mercy by stronger members of a godly society on behalf of the weak. And what I'm about to say, you can actually consider more deeply for yourself. In the notes that will be sent out, I've given actually the references which you can actually follow up. And it applies to Israelites and Hebrews. Now, someone might object and say, well, that only applies to Israelites and Hebrews. But didn't the people of Israel um, buy slaves from surrounding nations? 
And weren't these slaves not entitled to the same privileges as Hebrew slaves? And that's true. But, that, but to answer that, I would, would say, there's an expectation throughout the whole of the uh, Old Testament, and Jeremiah 7, the famous temple sermon, is an example of it, where the Israelites were continually told the importance of, de- of treating foreign nationals with the dignity and respect as human beings made in the image of God. So what does the Bible say about slavery? Well, firstly, it recognises that even among the people of God, some will prosper more than others, and some may fall upon hard times. Now, sometimes that could be the fault of the person themselves. It might be through laziness, might be through poor management, making unwise decisions. Sometimes it would not be the direct fault of the person at all. You see, when the nation sinned, God allowed war and famine to afflict the nation And just by its very nature, some might be affected more than others. It could also be through sickness or illness in the family. And this is what we read about in the book of Ruth, when they fell into hard times. But when a member of the community fell on hard times, it was expected that the others would lend to them generously. And if this didn't work, as a last result, the person could sell himself or herself into slavery. Now this was to be a fixed term arrangement, an arrangement of seven years, and it was to be for the mutual benefit of both parties. The owner, or master, took responsibility for meeting the basic needs of the slave and his family. The responsibility of providing a home, of providing food, clothing, and making sure that they were fit and healthy, because the slave would be of no use to the master if he got ill. The slave, in return, would be completely at his master's disposal, totally dedicated to serving his owner. And that meant setting aside his own wants, needs and ambitions. However, the master was not at liberty to exploit, and there were strict uh, strict instructions not to deal ruthlessly with his slaves. Now, without the burden of responsibility, the slave could work hard. He could learn how to manage money, manage a household and even manage a business. So at the end of that seven-year period, he could now stand on his own two feet. There was even the possibility that the slave would prosper so much that he could earn enough money to redeem himself. That is, to buy his freedom by compensating uh, the owner for the remainder of the seven years that he didn't serve. Now, the master would benefit because, to him, the value of the slave would be double that of a hired worker. And it's easy to see why. Because the slave would have a much more interest in the, in the prosperity of the master, since his home and family depends upon it. Now, the hired hand, if the uh, owner fell on hard times, the hired hand could simply get a job somewhere else. Now, at the end of the seven years, the master was required to give generously out of all his profits in order to set the slave up, so that he could now successfully make a living, providing a stable home for himself and his family. However, to emphasise the positive uh, in this arrangement, there was an expectation that the slave would be so happy with the arrangement that he would want to make that arrangement permanent. Now, to publicly acknowledge that arrangement, the slave would have his ear pierced by an awl, that is a, a kind of fine needle-like object, and, it would, and his ear would, the, the awl would be driven through his ear into, 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 the, into a doorpost. Now, when this happened... At the slave's request, the slave became known as a bondservant. And this is how Paul regarded his relationship 
with the Lord Jesus, a bondservant. One who knows the heart of his master is for good, for his benefit, to bless and not to exploit. In fact, this is an expression of love, because the Greek word agape means a consistent act of the will towards another's lasting good. To be a bondservant involves a lifelong commitment of total submission to his master's authority, and at the same time totally committing oneself into his care. Does this remind you of the words of Jesus? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. In other words, put him first above all things, above yourself, above your family, above your needs, ambitions. Put yourself totally at his disposal. Commit yourself totally into his service. Give yourself as a living sacrifice and he will take care of you and your needs and your family's needs. So there's no need to fret and worry over food, shelter, clothing or employment. As well as being a bondservant of Jesus Christ, Paul is also called as an apostle. Now this emphasises that Paul's apostleship was equal to that of the twelve. Like them, Paul was specifically chosen and appointed by Jesus. He had seen the risen Lord and he had the same authority to establish and govern the early church under Christ's headship. He also had authority to speak and write the word of God. And his writings uh, became recognised as being equal in authority to the Old Testament scriptures. And they make up much of our New Testament today. Notice Paul states that he's first a servant before a leader. See, there are many today who claim authority in the church as apostles or prophets. But do they have the heart of a servant? Jesus said, if anyone is to be great among you, he must become the servant of all. Paul then goes on to say that he's been set apart or separated. Now, in its most basic sense, this is what is meant to be holy, to be totally set aside for God's purposes. And Paul has been set aside to preach the gospel and to make it known particularly among the Gentiles. Now, the word gospel, as I'm sure you all know, means good news. And Paul is telling us that this good news is, that, is good news that God himself has for all of mankind. This good news is from the creator of heaven and earth, the one who made the world and everything in it, the one who sets the times and seasons, the one who upholds all things by the word of his power, the one who gives life and breath to all living things and has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell upon the face of the earth. The one true God, the Holy One of Israel, is the source of this good news for which Paul has been set apart and dedicated his whole life to making known. Now, the good news concerns the fulfilment of a promise. God both makes and keeps his promises. And this promise has been made known to mankind throughout history by word of mouth through his prophets, so we can hear it. And it's been recorded in writing in the Holy Scriptures for us to remember, for us to read, for us to study and meditate upon, and also to read aloud often, because faith comes by hearing, and hearing the word of God. So this tells us that the one true God wants to communicate with mankind. 
He wants to make his plans, his purpose. He wants to make his person known to us. And he wants to make himself known to us because it's for our benefit. He wants to bless us. It's good news. And this good news concerns his son, Jesus Christ. See, Jesus is the fulfilment of the promise that God made to mankind. The prophets spoke of him and the scriptures provide a written record of that promise. And this is why Jesus gave that amazing Bible study to the two on the road to Emmaus. You know the verse well. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now since Jesus began with Moses, that is Moses' writings. Since Jesus began with Moses, that's where we should begin. And this is where we first get the, the first hints of that promise, the first uh, inkling of, of, of the gospel message. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Now, when you're studying these notes, I recommend that at the same time you go back and actually look up some notes that actually Tom gave a year or two back and look at his uh, talk on the prelapsarian world and the fall because we need to understand what mankind fell from to understand the whole context of this. You see, the promise goes back to the occasion when God confronted Adam after Adam had rebelled. For that's what Adam did. It wasn't that Adam had simply gone off his diet. This was an act of... This was an act of rebellion. It was a desire to become like God's. It means that Adam was seeking independence from God. He wanted self-autonomy. He wanted to be the author of his own morality. He wanted to decide right and wrong for himself. And although warned of the consequence, God said to him, in that day you eat of it, you will surely die. Adam did not fully realise the consequences until after he'd eaten, eaten the fruit from the forbidden tree. Now death was inevitable because Adam sought to and did cut himself off from the source of all life. And if you cut yourself off from the source of all life, death is inevitable. Now Tom told us in his talks a year or two back, of the destructive consequences of the fall. It leads to deception, divorce, division and death. The relationship that Adam and Eve had enjoyed with God was now broken. They fell from a glorious existence in a perfect world where there was no sin or suffering, natural disaster, no disease, no death. And it's important that we understand what life was like before the fall. Because when we do so, it brings to our attention that God is not responsible for sin. God is not responsible for suffering, disease and death. Man is. As Paul says, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. And this is what we've inherited. This is the world we inhabit now. We inherited from our father Adam a world that has suffering, disease and death. And we have inherited his sin nature. Now when you consider what was like, was like before the fall and after the fall, we'll realise some very important things about death. See, do you understand that death is not a biological necessity? 
It's not natural. Death is also described as an enemy in the Bible, an enemy with a bitter sting. Death is a moral penalty for the rebellion of mankind against God. Paul says the wages of sin is death. And wages are what you deserve. Wages are what you earn. Now having eaten the fruit from the forbidden tree, Adam could not now do anything to restore what he had lost. And since we all inherit Adam's sin nature, neither can we. But there is good news. The good news is what is impossible with man is possible with God. And God made a promise to our ancestors that uh, he, he, he would and he could provide the solution. That God himself would provide a way to bring salvation to fallen mankind. To restore all that was lost and to be brought back into all that God is and all that God has. This is the promise that Paul is referring to that God has now fulfilled in the letter to the Romans. God has made a way through his son, Jesus Christ. Now there are many, and many in the church, who do not believe the events of uh, Genesis 1 as historical fact. And these people are very quick to point out, well, Adam didn't die on that day. God said he would die. He didn't die on that day. He didn't physically die. However, that's far too simplistic a view, and I'll give you some reasons why. Firstly, Adam did experience spiritual death. In that he was separated from God. He was expelled from the garden. Secondly, the process of decay leading to death did begin on that day. And Adam did eventually return to the dust, albeit some 900 years later. However, what is often overlooked, that the reason he didn't die that day, it was an act of mercy. That God allowed him to remain physically alive. And few people remember that on that day there was a death. Innocent blood was shed. The sacrifice of an unblemished animal was made to provide a covering for the consequence of sin. God provided Adam and Eve with tunics of animal skin for clothing. And this points to what God would do when Jesus died on the cross. And the, the, the skins point to the robes of righteousness that we will be clothed in. Now this sacrifice could not remove their sin. It only provided a temporary covering, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. See, although God values animals, their shed blood cannot atone for our sin. Only the shed blood of a perfect human could atone for sin, and only a human male, because it was by a human male that sin came into the world. An innocent human life must be made in payment for a guilty human life. Since all human beings inherit Adam's sin's nature, this is impossible. There isn't a single human being that can actually die and atone for their own sin, let alone anybody else's. And the only way this would be possible is unless God himself became human, entered time and space and became human, and was sacrificed for what uh, Wesley describes as Adam's helpless race. God promised that the Redeemer of mankind would be of the seed of the woman, not of the man. He would have no human father. And God was indicating here in the book of Genesis that he himself would enter into humanity and make a way of salvation. 
So just returning now to to Romans chapter 1. See, the good news that Paul was set apart to bring the world was the fact that Jesus Christ is this man. In fulfilment of Isaiah's prophecy that the virgin shall give birth, Jesus was conceived without a human father. And in verse 3 of uh, Romans, Paul emphasised that Jesus is God's son. And the Apostle John reminds us he is God's only begotten son. That is, he is of the same being and nature of God. And then Paul goes on to say that he was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, meaning that he was also perfectly human. So Jesus is fully man and fully God. And we have it here in the letter to the Romans. Now Isaiah also told us that he would suffer, the servant of the Lord, he would suffer and die for the sins of his people. Isaiah says he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of his people and that he would be assigned a grave with the wicked but at the rich, with the rich at his death. Now this was literally fulfilled. Jesus died, in the company of, died on the cross in the company of criminals and with the intention that he would be buried in a common grave with those criminals. But a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, requested his body and buried him in his own grave. Now this is the gospel that Paul preached. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and that he rose again on the third day. And at the end of this amazing first sentence, at the end of verse 4, Paul says that it's because of the resurrection that he was declared to be the Son of God. Now notice it says declared, not became. See, Jesus always was and always will be the Son of God. But on that day he was raised from the dead, there was the proof. It was now evident to all. All who witnessed the risen Lord, all who heard testimony of it, it's now an indisputable fact that he is the Son of God that he has made the perfect sacrifice for sin is proof that this sacrifice was acceptable to God and that God has indeed fulfilled his promise. God has provided a way of salvation to restore that which was lost. That we can be at peace with God. We can enjoy a relationship with the living God. We are no longer cut off, no longer without hope. In fact, as Wesley writes in one of his hymns, we are exhorted to boldly enter the most holy place. Bold I approach the eternal throne. Now, this means that the Christian faith is based on the indisputable historical fact that Jesus shed his blood upon the cross, died, was buried and rose again on the third day. And Paul stated very clearly to the Corinthian church that if this did not really happen then the Christian faith is futile that we're still in our sins, that we misrepresent God, and above all men, we are to be pitied. Now, many have tried to prove the resurrection did not happen. In fact, I've heard the testimony of some who tried to prove the resurrection false, who now travel the world preaching the gospel. Paul summarises the facts of the gospel as a straightforward legal argument in chapter 5 of this letter. He says, therefore, as through one man's offence judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so, one man's righteousness, the free gift came to all men, 
resulting in justification of life. Now, if the truth of the gospel depends on the historical fact of the resurrection, then the reason it was made necessary in the first place was because of another historical fact, the sin of Adam. See, we cannot just write off the Genesis account of our origins as mere myth and legend as some do. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul makes the same arguments and describes Jesus as the last Adam. So it begs the question to the theistic evolutionist or the old earth creationist, which Adam is not essential to the gospel? The first Adam who made salvation necessary or the last Adam who made salvation possible? Now much more could be said and indeed should be said about this amazing opening sentence. And this sentence shows us that Paul was so full of the gospel that immediately he started talking about it, he wanted to just get it all out at once, like releasing uh, the cork from a champagne bottle. And this verse covers four verses. And if you think that's impressive, try reading the first sentence to the letter of the Ephesians, which covers 14. But what I want to do now is move on from that first sentence because I want to consider the effect that the gospel has on the believer. On a later occasion, God willing, I hope to consider what Paul, uh, the reason why Paul wrote this letter. But as we consider Paul's opening greetings, I want us to notice the attitude that the Holy Spirit working in him has produced and therefore ask ourselves and consider whether those same, same attitudes are being produced in us. You see, we need to remember that Paul is writing to believers. We need to remember that Paul is writing to believers he's never met. However, his opening greetings are very similar with the ones with which he greets the churches which he himself established. And therefore, Christians he knew well. So Paul recognised um, that all he had was an expression of God's grace. He recognised that uh, he had been called and adopted into God's family. So Paul greets them, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Now a month or two back we did focus in some detail on these greetings. So I'll briefly just summarise by saying grace means God's kindness to the undeserving. And peace speaks of the reconciliation and restoration of our relationship with God. Now the consequence of being reconciled to God is that we are indeed adopted into his family and we're brought into right relationship with God. It naturally uh, follows therefore that we will be brought into a right relationship with the rest of his family, with other believers. Which is why Paul begins by thanking God for them. Without even meeting them, Paul is convinced of the genuineness of, of their faith because it is spoken of throughout the world. They have an excellent reputation, which is recognised by others. And the reason it's recognised is because the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the fruit that the Holy Spirit has been produced them, is evident to all. It can be seen, it can be clearly seen and experienced in what they do, in what they say. It can be seen in their character, in their conduct, and how they relate to one another. Now, even though Paul has never met them, he prays for them in the same unceasing way he prays for all those he knows and loves because they're all members of the same family. He loves them and he wants them to know God's blessing. 
and he consistently desires their lasting good. He wants to establish a relationship with them, which he expresses by revealing that he would dearly love to visit them and to meet them personally. And this should be the desire in all Christians, a desire to meet together and to relate personally. And Paul's prayer is that God grants him the opportunity to make that visit in order to bless them, to establish them, to build them up, to encourage them, encourage them to continue in their walk of faith, their walk of faithful obedience. Not only that, but also so Paul himself can receive a blessing. See, when we're adopted into God's family, it's important for us to remember that we must learn to both give and receive. And we all need to learn how to give and we all need to learn how to receive. Now I've found over the years that there are some Christians that are so intent on giving that it's almost impossible to bless them, to try and give them something back. And that can actually get in the way of relationship. And it's important that we do allow people to give. You see, I'm reminded of the occasion when Jesus stood in the temple area and noticed the widow put two coins into the collection. And he recognised what it had cost her. Now sometimes when we read these accounts, it's important to think about what Jesus didn't do as well as what he did. And he didn't send one of the disciples over there to refund her gift saying, well, you need it more than we do. <laughs> no, he allowed her the blessing of being able to give. Now I have absolutely no doubt that he would have blessed her richly for her faithfulness. She was not aware that Jesus was watching and she did not think about what she... Uh, she did, when she gave, she did not think about getting anything in return. But I've absolutely no doubt that God could t took care of her. And I don't know how. Maybe when she went to her food cupboard, it lasted an unusually long time. Maybe her clothes or shoes didn't seem to wear out. Now, I don't know. But I do know that Jesus noticed and would have blessed her faithfulness. Now just to give you, um, just going off script here, just a, a, an, an example of that in the modern day. About six or seven years ago I heard the testimony of a man, a man who worked for a missionary organisation that was working in Zimbabwe about seven years ago. And um, seven or eight years ago there was a big famine in uh, Zimbabwe. And a South African pastor had a dream and God told him to actually fill up his car with food, food parcels that would last people for about a month and take it across the border. Now, this seemed impossible because any cars going across the border would be searched and if they were taking any food in, uh, it would be removed. But uh, this man put a tarpaulin over the top and he put a few fishing rods to make out he was going fishing. And he went to the border and miraculously they let him across. They only searched his car when he came back in. Now he saw the need that was in Zimbabwe at the time. And so he said, well I can't just make one trip. I've got to, I've got to keep doing it, I've got to go back. And not only that, and what eventually happened, he encouraged other people in his church to do the same. And miraculously every time they went across the border, they weren't searched, but they were searched on the way back out. Now one of those food parcels that was made up for the month was actually given to a lady. A lady that had um, been detained by the police and kept in, uh, you know, kept in custody for a couple of days. And when she returned home, she was given this parcel. And the first thing she did was actually, even though it supplied all her needs for the month, 
she took it back to the police station and presented it to the police officers because they were suffering too. And the police officers were so touched, two of them gave their lives to the Lord. Now, a strange thing happened that year in that area is that uh, somehow the fruit, all the fruit on the trees seemed to remain all year round. Now, just one other point, which just before moving on, is that we need to remember that Paul needed to receive a blessing too. Even though he was an apostle and bore the responsibility of leadership, he needed to receive their blessing as well as giving blessing to them. And that should remind us that we need to bless our leaders too and not simply receive from them. See, we all need each other. We need to learn to love and to support each other. Now, the blessing that Paul desires to bring them is to preach the gospel. And you might be wondering, well, why would he want to do that? I mean, surely they know the gospel already. I mean, he's just said they're believers. Um, well, one of the first things that becomes apparent when you first receive the gospel, although it's quite straightforward and could be relatively easily explained in just a few minutes, you do begin to realise that the more you think about it, it will take you about it will take you an eternity before you fully understand it. See, the gospel is a call to saving faith, that is true. But it's also concerned with continuing that walk, by continuing that walk in saving faith. And that's why Paul wants to preach the gospel to them. Now Paul con concludes this introductory section of the letter by declaring that he is not ashamed of the gospel. He did so because he recognised the power of the good news message to bring people to salvation. That is to bring them back into right relationship with God. He had experienced its power in his own life and was committed to making it known to wherever God chose to send him. And he states that he's not ashamed because he had no doubt um, experienced the fact that the world tries and continues to try to make us ashamed. And although he wrote this letter when the level of persecution of Christians in Rome was way below what they were about to experience a few years later, there would still have been a social pressure that resisted the acceptance of the gospel. And we can see this pressure to, uh, steadily increasing in British society today. I recently listened to an interview, a sort of a television interview stroke debate, between a Christian and an atheist about comments made just before Christmas by the Prime Minister about encouraging Christian values. And these are some of the comments that were made by the atheist. I am an atheist. I follow science. It's amazing. In 21st century Britain, religion is over and it's great. In 21st century Britain, we need to move forward and not to be tied to what is written or what was written in the book hundred years, uh, hundreds of years ago. We need to use our own moral compass to define what is right for us in the 21st century. We need British values that are not tied to an, an historic religion that is outdated. People can practice their Christian views privately, but the last thing we want is those Christian views being brought into the political arena. We want political decisions made on best practice, what is best for humanity, and not, and not based on varying interpretations of a book written a long time ago. Now, although these are the views of that individual, 
they actually are a fair representation of the kind of, kind of predominant mood that seems to be sweeping this nation and indeed Europe and I would say the USA as well. You see, nothing as much has changed, and I was going to say in 2,000 years, but actually nothing as much changed in 6,000 years. See, our society is stuck in the same rebellion as Adam and Eve at the beginning of history, saying to God, we don't want your truth, we want to determine truth for ourselves. We want to be as gods. We too, like Paul, need to boldly assert that we are not ashamed of the gospel because we recognise what we once were. We know how much we have been forgiven because we remember what it costs our Lord and Saviour in bringing salvation to us and because we know the immense joy of being restored in a right relationship with the living God, living a life of continuous faith covering every aspect of our lives. Just drawing to a close, Paul began this letter by declaring that he was a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. How do we see ourselves? Are we bondservants, fully at our Lord's disposal, fully committed in our service of him and fully trusting him to care for our needs? Are we willing to respond to our Saviour's call wherever he calls us to be? Are we prepared to take on the responsibility of leadership, prepared to serve him in places of hardship or danger, or to take on a role where there is little human acknowledgement or recognition of our service? Are we set aside for his glorious gospel, willing to declare it to a world that will try to make us ashamed? We cannot do this without his spirit within us to strengthen and empower us. We cannot do this without his wisdom and guidance. And we cannot do this apart from his body. We need each other. We need each other to love and encourage and support one another. Let us therefore call upon him and ask him to enable us to bring the light of the gospel to this dark and dying world. Amen.